Have you finished your personal statement yet? Now's the perfect time to get it professionally reviewed by a medical school HQ expert advisor. We have former directors of admissions, admissions officers, and the like on our small team of amazing people. They have the inside knowledge from reading thousands and thousands and thousands, tens, if not 100,000 personal statements going through the process and setting up the process for their whole committee. They know exactly what medical schools look for and the common red flags that can get your entire application thrown out. Take advantage of our flash sale right now, going through May 6th, up to 6,000 characters reviewed for just $150. That's a $75 discount on our regular price. Go to editmyps.com. Again, that's editmyps.com. If you're applying to medical school in 2022 to start medical school in 2023, join me Wednesday or Thursday, Wednesday night at 9.30 p.m. Eastern, or Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern at premedworkshop.com. Go register today. I'm going to show you how to tell your story in your application. Again, that's premedworkshop.com. If you are applying to medical school in 2022, be there or be square. The Medical School Headquarters Podcast, session number 151. Hello and welcome back to the Medical School Headquarters Podcast, where we believe that collaboration, not competition, is key to your pre-med success. I'm your host, Dr. Ryan Gray, and in this podcast, we share with you stories, encouragement, and information that you need to know to help guide you on your path to becoming a physician. Now, at the beginning there, I said, welcome back to the Medical School Headquarters podcast. But in reality, it could be your first time listening to this podcast. So I want to thank you for taking the time out of your day to take a look and see what we're all about here at the Medical School Headquarters podcast. We are 151 episodes in. This is 151 of a podcast dedicated to you, the pre-med, helping you on your path, motivating you, giving you information, encouraging you and showing that you're not alone on this journey. So if you like today's podcast, if that all sounds great to you, go back and download all the other 150 episodes because you'll find some golden nuggets in there as well. The last couple weeks before our 150th episode, we had a couple physicians who have written books. This week, we have Dr. Eric Strong, who has an amazing YouTube channel called Eric's Medical Lectures. Now, Eric is a physician. He's a clinical assistant professor of medicine at Stanford, and he's going to share with us his story on how he came about becoming a physician and a lot of tips for pre-meds and what they need to know about medicine. There's also a video that we reference. We'll have a link to that in the show notes at medicalschoolhq.net slash one. for episode 151. Eric, welcome to the Medical School Headquarters podcast. Thanks, Ryan. Thanks for having me. Not a problem. I want to find out from you when in your journey through schooling you knew you wanted to be a doctor. Uh, That's that's a good question. I think probably it was, you know, when I was a kid, you know, in elementary school, when, you know, inevitably someone would ask you, oh, what do you want to be when you grow up? And being a doctor is something I, I sort of, you know, I'm sure I gave as an answer very frequently to those types of questions. 
you know, from teachers or from parents or parents' friends or whatnot. And then when I actually, when, when I got to high school, I had sort of changed career focus a little bit or kind of changed my plan a little bit to become an engineer instead and somewhere in the engineering slash physics realm. And went off to college, went to college at MIT. And when I got there, I was sort of anticipating being a physics major and or something, again, something in engineering. And midway through college, I just decided that wasn't really for me. Um, I think it was probably a quantum mechanics that <laughs> probably pushed me <laughs> over the edge. But, you know, I just decided that it, it, you know, I wanted to do something that felt more applicable to real life. Not to say that, you know, physics is not applicable to real life, but something that just felt more tangible. Like I would be making a, a, some type of contribution on a day-to-day basis as opposed to a contribution on a, on a year-to-year basis or even over you know many, many years. And uh, I just felt like medicine was uh, the right combination of wanting to do something like that, combining with interest in the sciences, a love of just talking to people and interacting with people. So it just seemed to be like a natural fit. And like I said, I, I, I kind of reached that conclusion probably midway through college. So it was pretty late for me. So quantum mechanics is to physics majors as organic and biochem is to, to pre-meds. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> I think that's, that's sort of, that was the course when you realized whether or not physics was for you. You know, you could, you could definitely tell people in the classroom, you know, like, who are, like me, who are just like, oh my gosh, this is way more math and I'm ready to get into. <laughs> that, it was probably not the best career choice for us. So how do you, how do you go from being an engineering major obviously a, a huge engineering school at MIT, to finding this path to pre-med. How do you go about that, making that change and getting all the information that you need to know? For me, it wasn't actually too bad. I, th- I think a lot of people don't realize that, that MIT is, is actually a huge pre-med, has a huge pre-med program. It's actually, it's probably one of its top, you know, one or two different most common career paths for undergraduates is to um, going into the, the medical sc- into medical school. So there was just, I mean, there's a ton of people, a ton of resources available to just, you know, bounce ideas off of my, uh, our floor tutor or our, our, our RA, I guess most schools call it, was actually a student at the time at um, so, uh, MD, H, uh, MD, PhD at the Harvard HST program. So, you know, he was a huge resource for talking about you know, any kind of questions about, you know, applying for pre-meds, about, you know, taking the MCATs, about what types of activities um, were going to be helpful, what interviews were going to be like. I mean, he was a great resource for that. So it actually, for me, it wasn't too much of a, a struggle finding resources and finding people to talk to. That's great. So you change career paths or, or, or majors and figure out, I believe you changed majors to biology, and we'll kind of talk about that a little bit later. But on your journey going to medical school and going into your internship, how did you figure out what you wanted to do specialty-wise? I think, you know, as, as a lot of, I think most students, when they get to, to med school, they have, they don't really have any idea what they want to do other than be a doctor. I mean, I think they, you know, and even then, they, that's, I think some people show up to med school not even sure if they want to be a doctor, which <laughs> I think is probably okay in most circumstances, not always, but probably okay for most people. That's but, the 3% uh, that uh, drop out. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's pretty small. I mean, it's, I'm sure it has a huge variability depending on which school you're talking about. Yep. But, you know, for me, like I went to med school and like as with many people and, you know, starting off first year, just did not know what it was kind of like a, a blank slate. I didn't know if I wanted to do internal medicine or a surgical field or pediatrics. And just kind of going through the courses, you sort of, I, I think the first, 
you know, just like physics is like, a, or sort of like quantum mechanics is a good differentiator for who's going to become an actual physicist. I feel like in the anatomy lab was a good differentiator for who's more likely to go into surgical fields. Because you just kind of get a sense in anatomy lab, you know, you have the cadaver, you have huge amounts of time that you're spending there. You can go back after hours and spend additional time outside of class if you want. And you would just kind of see which students really kind of gravitated to doing that, just, you know, literally dissecting the body. And for me, like, I, I had no idea if I was going to like it or not. And I, after, you know, a few weeks in anatomy lab, I just kind of got the sense that it really, I just didn't, it wasn't what I was felt like passionate about. I was not in love with, you know, doing the dissections and about the actual anatomy. And, and that's you, know, if that's, you know, I've noticed students out there saying, oh my gosh, I don't know if I'm going to like anatomy lab. That's totally fine. Like a lot of med students don't like anatomy lab. But what it does is it sort of differentiates like who's more likely to go into surgery and who's more likely to go into a non-surgical field. And so I feel like as soon as anatomy lab, like again, a few weeks into it, I, I felt like this is, I'm not going to be destined for surgery. And it doesn't mean that like you can't change your mind later on. But that for me, that was the point which I realized that was not the case. And then beyond that, you know, in terms of differentiating between internal medicine and or pediatrics or neurology, you know, these non-surgical fields, you really don't get a sense of that, I think, until you're actually in clerkships, you know, uh, doing your clinical rotations in third year or whatever it happens to be for um, some less conventional medical schools. And you kind of you know, get a sense of, of what seems like it fits and what feels right to you. Um, I know that when I was starting clerkships in our third year of, of medical school, I felt pretty undifferentiated between internal medicine, neurology, and pediatrics. And it really just took rotating on, on those three services, on those three departments to get a sense of what the fields were. And, you know, you're not going to be like an expert at the field after like eight weeks of peds. I mean, it's not like to say that you know as much about what it is to be a pediatrician than a pediatrician knows, but you get a sense of whether or not that's going to be the right career path for you. I, I feel like it doesn't take a whole lot of time working in that field to get a sense that that's appropriate for you. And I mean, I certainly love pediatrics and I love neurology and I loved a lot of the other rotations I did. But it just felt like internal medicine just felt much, just felt right. I mean, it felt like it was a good fit. And then once applying to internal medicine, then you have to talk about, like, well, how do you know whether or not to specialize? You know, whether or not to do cardiology or pulmonary or renal or GI. And sort of like the process of figuring out what specialty you want to do, you want to go into, like the fact you want to go into internal medicine. The same thing applies when you get to intern year and you're trying to decide about subspecialty or not to subspecialize. And you just go through different rotations. You know, you spend two weeks on cardiology elective and you spend two weeks on ID elective. You know, you spend you know, an afternoon a week in the primary care clinics as a, a medical intern. And you just see kind of what fits, what seems like it feels comfortable, what you enjoy. You have to think about, you know, at some point along the way, what's going to be a good decision for reasons that go beyond just what feels right to you. And there's issues at some point along the way with um, how much you want to be in training. You know, a lot of these additional fields take much longer than others. Issues relating uh, financial reimbursement, and eventual salary, because for some people that's a major concern, either because you know they that's one of the reasons that they're looking at getting into medicine, which hopefully is not the case, but for some people it might be. But also just you know paying back student debt. If you have you know six figure medical school debt, you're trying to figure out like how you're going to pay that back while you know buying a house, paying for mortgage, trying to um, raise a family. Occasionally, again, salaries do take some consideration. So it kind of all this, all it kind of, you know, filters in, like I said, as an intern, you, you sort of get a sense of what you want to do. And, you know, it's kind of funny when I started internship, I, I was sort of leaning towards cardiology and my, my wife who's also a physician and we actually couples matched. 
she was leaning towards just general medicine. And then midway through internship, we actually switched and she decided to do cardiology and I decided to do general medicine. So that was kind of a, and just, so I, I still kind of, I feel like sometimes I, I live as a cardiologist vicariously through her. You know, she uh, will talk about difficult cases at home and um, I'll be like, oh, that sounds really cool. And, and um, I can also have someone to bounce ideas off of as well. So that's interesting. My wife is also a physician. She's a neurologist. Mm. Do you find that bringing your work home and talking about it, do you like that or do you get tired of that? I, we, don't, we don't do it too much. I, I think it's, it's a problem if you have a two physician family. And like all your at home conversation is around medicine. Like that could be, that's definitely could be a problem. But I think it's helpful to have someone just to bounce, again, bounce ideas off of mm-hmm. that. You know, obviously we all have colleagues, we can do that as well. But sometimes you have some idea that seems just a little bit less conventional or you really want someone's opinion that you trust 110%. And so it's, it's good. To, I, I mean, I, I certainly appreciate having a spouse physician or physician spouse, just uh, for that reason. But I definitely would recommend, you know, the expanding conversation beyond just, <laughs> hey, I saw this cool case in the hospital today, or did you read this latest paper in the New England Journal? Like, we don't, we don't have discussions on the dinner table about, you know, journals or anything like that. Yeah, no, no journal clubs every night. No, there's no journal club <laughs> in our home. So on your path, you go to NYU for medical school. You're at Stanford for your internship and residency. So great schools, great programs. What was your biggest challenge along the way, either getting into those places or while you're at those places? Biggest challenge? I think, I mean, part of it was a relatively, not obviously it's not a unique issue, but it's um, a minority of people will face this is when you're when your couple's matching trying to negotiate with your spouse in terms of where you're going to be interviewing that can be uh you know like if one of you is like in love with west coast one's in love with the east coast or one you know only wants to apply in big cities one wants to also think about some suburban programs and so that was that was a little bit of a challenge for us because we had i think slightly different opinions about where we wanted to apply but uh you know just like all things you just you kind of negotiate it and uh, I think it worked out pretty well in the end. Another challenge, and I, I, this is not something I, I don't think I've told more than a handful of people, so, um, but uh, I'll, I'll tell your, your listeners, is that when I applied to medical school, I'm sorry, I'm sorry when I applied to internship, um, I actually, I didn't get an offer from Stanford for an interview, and, um, but my wife did. So, and we, you know, we, we applied to a bunch of different programs in the area, like UCSF and Davis and whatnot. And uh, so there were certainly possibilities that we, you know, we could end up matching in the Bay Area and still work out okay, just not be at the same program. But my, uh, my wife actually called up Stanford and said, hey, I really like coming to Stanford, but I'm not going to come there unless um, you offer my, I mean, I don't think she phrased it quite like this, but <laughs> it was sort of like saying, hey, I really like to come there, but, you know, a couple's matching and we really, you know, strongly considering our, our strong preferences to match at the same program. And my husband actually was not offered an interview. Um, do you mind kind of re- uh, re-evaluating uh, his application and seeing if you think that you may have made a mistake. And so uh, luckily they re-evaluated it and offered me an interview and uh, we've been wow. here since. Wow. So it's, it's good to have an agent on your side. Yeah, no, it's good to have an agent. And I think it's good also to advocate for yourself. I mean, I think something that people don't realize is, you know, if you don't have that agent, you don't have that leverage of, of a spouse that can kind of leverage her, her own desirability, it's okay to advocate for yourself. Mm-hmm. You know, for example, like I, I think it was probably more effective for her to advocate for me because she, I mean, she was like a really, I mean, she is a, an outstanding candidate for the then, but 
even if you don't have someone that, in that role, like if you don't get an interview offer, you can call up the program and say, hey, I wasn't offered an interview or I wasn't offered a position. I really, really want to come to your institution. These are the reasons that I think that I'm really an outstanding candidate. And would you mind going back and again, reevaluating my application to see whether or not you might reconsider. And, you know, Stanford gets that. I mean, I don't, don't, uh, don't mistake this. I don't work for the Stanford admissions committee or anything like that. And I'm not speaking for anyone other than myself, but I do know that Stanford gets a, a fair number of those requests each year. And they, they do consider each, each one individually of someone that uh, felt that they were not given adequate consideration. So again, if don't, my advice would be, don't be afraid to advocate for yourself, you know, just cause you don't get accepted, or don't get an interview doesn't mean the game's over. You can always, you know, contact them and, and push a little bit harder. Yeah. That's great advice for medical school, for internship, for residency, for jobs, uh, yeah, I mean, ad- if, advocate for yourself. Absolutely. So you're a physician, you're working at Stanford. When did this idea of creating a YouTube channel that you now have called Eric's medical lectures come from? Yeah, it, it sort of, it wasn't super well thought out, to be honest, at the beginning. I, at the time, I was giving a handful of conferences at, over the lunch hour to the residency program, something that residencies call noon conference. And the ACGME, which is the organization that kind of oversees and oversees residency programs to make sure they adhere to certain educational standards. And they, at the time, and I believe they still do, required programs to put any materials presented during noon conferences available on websites so that students that were not able to attend the conference because of clinical duties or because it was their day off or because they had some other conflict could still kind of see what they missed and still have access to that material. And so I, I got these um, got these emails from the program saying, oh, hey, Eric, you know, I, you uh, gave a talk on a couple of topics in the last month. I think well, there was one on shock and one on COPD exacerbations and one on DKA. Do you mind sending us the PowerPoint slides so we can post them for the residents that weren't able to watch them, or I'm sorry, weren't able to attend, can, can see them? And I thought, oh, well, that sounds nice. But it occurred to me that if my PowerPoint slide deck could substitute for my talk, my talk is probably pretty bad, right? Like, I mean, like a PowerPoint should not be the same as a talk. <laughs> so I decided to kind of incrementally make that a little bit better by actually kind of narrating the slide set. And at the time, there wasn't really an obvious place to store and sort of make a video file. And at the time, there wasn't an obvious place to store a video file on the, the medicine residency's website because it was sort of set up for, again, for PowerPoints and for handouts and things like that. And so I thought, oh, what's a, a great platform for posting videos that everyone's going to be familiar with and it's going to be easy to access? Well, YouTube just seemed to be like a natural choice for that. And so I, I posted them on YouTube. And at the time, again, I wasn't really thinking about the broader picture, what this could turn into, because I was just sort of anticipating it was just going to be, you know, a handful of Stanford residents. And so I called it Eric's Medical Lectures because, you know, that would be, it would be easy for them to find. We had to just, you know, just know, oh, type in Eric's Lectures into YouTube and these things will pop up. And then um, after I did that, though, it, it was after, you know, a few weeks, people began sending me messages, not people from Stanford, people from all over the place. Because, you know, once something's on YouTube, it's publicly searchable and people would be, you know, just doing YouTube searches for, you know, I want to learn about shock or I want to know about COPD or I want to learn about, you know, X, Y, and Z topic. And they would come across my videos and they would send me messages about asking me questions for clarification or suggesting ideas for new videos. 
And the more of these emails I got, more of these YouTube messages I got, the more I realized that this is like, there's this huge potential for reaching like thousands and thousands of people on YouTube with educational content, with educational material that at the time was really untapped. I mean, this is going back four years and there were very few people doing that back then. And I, I, to be honest, I wasn't even aware that anyone was doing it back then, but there were, in retrospect, there were a couple of people. But for the most part, using YouTube for this purpose of, of distributing free online medical content was just sort of unheard of. And uh, it sort of occurred to me like that was this great, like unused platform. It was a great opportunity to reach lots of people, a huge audience, and sort of just caught on from there. Obviously, it's caught on. I'm looking at your page now. It has over 63,000 subscribers. So congratulations on that. Thank you. But there's one video in particular where you talk about 10 things every pre-med should know about becoming a doctor. And that's what I want to kind of talk about right sure. now. Of course. And I want to, I went through the video and I wrote down all the points that you had. I want to start with your last point about how medical school should never be the default pathway. Can you explain mm-hmm. that? Yeah, I think that for a lot of people, there's a lot of students out there in, in high school or college, and they sort of fall in the same probably the same spot that I found myself in where you excel in school, you do very well in school, you get good grades, you really enjoy science, you enjoy talking to people also, you enjoy helping people and kind of volunteering and trying to, you know, uh, better the communities around you. And it just seems like medicine's like the obvious choice for someone in, who finds themselves in that position, someone who has those attributes where, again, they, they enjoy science and they also like volunteering and helping out and talking to people, interacting. They just like, oh, medicine's just the obvious place to go. And I see happening, and we sort of alluded to the fact that not everyone that goes to medical school ends up, you know, becoming a doctor. But what happened is people, you know, they go to college sort of just on the pre-med, you know, this pre-med idea in their head, and they'll, you know, go through the pre-med program, they'll do all the pre-med requirements, and then it comes time to apply for medical school. And it's sort of like they don't even stop and pause to say, wait a minute, is this really for me now? Like I've had a couple more years to think about this. I've seen my other friends and they're sort of choosing career paths. Am I sure I want to still do medical school? I think a lot of people just, once they're on the, the pre-med train, they just keep taking it you know, from one station to the next. And they never reevaluate and, and reflect back on whether or not that's really the right place for them. And so then they, they get to medical school. And the sense is that once you go to medical school, then you you sort of... I don't know, so you're, you're not trapped in the sense that I mean, you can always leave, but certainly once you, you kind of put in two or three years of medical school, now you've accumulated a huge amount of debt, you're a couple of years behind the game in the job market, and it's really, really hard to get out of, again, the, the medical school train once you're on it. You know, I think about people that I, I went to medical school with and people that I did residency with, and there's some people now that are practicing physicians that are very like are very discontent with their lives as physicians, and a lot of them. It's, I mean, you could, for some extent, people will say, "Well, it's because medicine's changed over the last five or ten years, and it's not the same experience as it was when we started medical school." Well, that's to some extent certainly true, but I think a lot of it is people that probably, looking back on it, realize they shouldn't have gone into medical school to begin with, and now once you graduate from medical school, again, it's it seems kind of hard to think of if you've been so successful um, that you've gone to medical school and become a successful doctor, it seems like it should be really easy to change careers, change professions to something that you're going to find more satisfying. But it's actually not always as easy as it, as it seems. Like I said, I, I definitely know people that I, I went to school with that are feel like medicine was the wrong choice and they just, they feel trapped. Like they feel like they can't, you know, they have, they have $150,000 medical school debt 
They do not have, and they have a family, they, they have a mortgage, they can't go back to school to learn to do something different. And I just would, I would caution people that, you know, if you're thinking about pre-med, just every step of the way, you know, when you're going from, when you're in college, when you're applying to medical school, when you accept the medical, get a medical school acceptance, when you get to medical school and you're thinking about residency, so every step along the way, reflect back and make sure this is really the right path for you. And there's definitely some places along the way that you can kind of jump off the train if, so to speak, if you realize it's, there's a, a, something that's more appropriate. But once you've gone through and now are an MD, and again, you have a huge medical debt, you have a mortgage, you've kind of lost the opportunity to study different fields or, or get different degrees, it's really, really hard to go back. One of the motivating factors maybe that keeps people on the train, so to speak, is this lure of money. And, yeah. and in your video, you show one of the Medscape surveys that shows the financial benefits of being whatever specialty that you choose. But one of your tips in this video is becoming a doctor is not a good way to become rich. What did you mean by that? Some people get, you know, I've heard a couple of people kind of say to me in response to that comment, well, I don't understand. Like you show doctors they make 200, $300, $400,000. I mean, that seems like a great way to get rich. And I don't mean to imply that doctors are not, are not successful, that we struggle because we definitely don't struggle. I mean, we're definitely much better off financially than, than many, many other people are in the country. And no one's complaining about that. But what I think a lot of people don't realize is the type of individual that is prone to being successful in medicine, you know, the type of person that from college can, can study hard, get good grades, get great MCAT scores, get into a good medical school, survive medical school, get into residency, survive residency, you know, and become a doctor. The type of person who's able to do that has a higher earning potential in a lot of other fields. Like you can imagine if, again, if, if making a lot of money is your primary motivating factor, if you're able to go through medical school and successfully and end up as a doctor, you're going to be able to, to do a lot of other careers probably that will actually, actually end up more lucrative. So the same type of people that can go, again, can kind of pursue a career in medicine could pursue a career in business or could pursue a successful career in law that in the end will eventually make more money than being a doctor, even though $200,000 or $300,000 sounds like an enormous fortune, you know, uh, some struggling undergrad right now. Again, if you're in the, if you're the type of student that is going to be successful in medical school, if making money is your top priority, there's a lot of fields that you can go into and be successful that are going to make more money than medicine. I like that. I've never really heard it said that way, that basically, if you're able to get that MD after your name and finish your training, you have the dedication, you have the discipline, you have the smarts that you could probably be successful in a lot of different things. Yeah, absolutely. I like that. One of the other points in your video, you talk about extracurricular activities and mm -hmm. kind of the whole mantra of quality versus quantity. Talk about your story of the extracurriculars that have hung around in your memory. Yeah. In the video, I talk about the fact that when I was in college, you know, I, I did 10, 15, 20 different activities in college. And it wasn't, I mean, I wasn't doing these activities so I could put them on the resume. It was things that I, I genuinely enjoyed doing. But at the same time, I was certainly cognizant of the fact that, you know, having a, a lot of activities that you could potentially put on the resume would sort of make it look like I had a, a broader range of interests and a, a broader range of skills. And I think that's, that's true of a lot of pre-meds as they feel like, oh my gosh, I have to, you know, there's like this list of certain things they have to do. I have to have community service on there. I have to have 
tutoring on there. I have to have some type of research on there. I have to have X, Y, and Z. You have to click off these little boxes and they end up again with, with 10, 15, 20 different activities as well on the resume. And when, when I applied, went to apply for medical school and I had all these things on the application, I thought, oh, this is great. You know, I have like humanity, have Habitat for Humanity. I have tutoring at this elementary school. I have a bunch of intramural sports. It's going to be, you know, it's going to look great. And I got to my interviews and no one cared. Like it was just like, you know, so I was expecting to get, you know, these interview questions about all these wonderful things in my mind, all these wonderful things that I was doing. And it's just no one cared because my application looked like the application of every other person. Like every person out there has 10, 15, 20 different random activities that are all, you know, showing the, the breadth of that individual. And so I went to medical school then. And in medical school, you, you have way less time for things like that for activities because you're spending a lot more time studying, for example. And so my activities in medical school were much, much reduced in number. And I mean, one in particular, which I, again, I mentioned in the, in the video is, you know, my wife and I took a year off from medical school and we spent it six months of that year in Papua New Guinea, working at a hospital there. And, you know, that, you know, that obviously was something that I, you know, I, I discussed in the application for internship. And when applying for internship, every single person asked about that. Like it was, you know, it was, it was like this incredible contrast, you know, where applying for med school had like 15 activities. No one asked about a single one, applied for internship, had three activities and every single interviewer had a lot to ask about. And there was a lot to discuss with this New Guinea experience we had. And that sort of got me thinking that, you know, really, as you put it, you know, quality over quantity is really, really key. I think that I think a lot of pre-meds underappreciate the value of that, of being able to not just you know, think about, oh, I have to check off these boxes, I have to have my volunteer activity in this, my volunteer activity in that, but actually do things you're passionate about. Because, you know, when you are on the application or in writing, you know, writing a personal statement on the application, or when you're in an interview, and someone asks you about, you know, your time that you were secretary of Circle K, you know, that's something you're not going to be very passionate. I mean, they're not going to ask you about that, first of all, but if they did, that's probably something you're not going to be able to talk about very passionately. And that's going to come through during the interview. And they're going to realize that this was sort of just not something that you really cared that much about. It didn't really transform your life. It's not something that's going to actually impact your future career as a physician. Versus if you spend, if, if you devoted a huge amount of time and energy to something very specific, something unique, something that clearly impacted you in a very transformative way, that's going to make much more of a pressure on Emissions committee and you know, an interviewer, they're going to you know, take note of that. That's going to be something they're going to ask you about, want to talk to you about. That's something you can talk about in your personal statement. In the end, I really think that kind of focusing on, you know, it's a small handful of things that you feel very passionate about is actually going to be more important at the end of the day and more satisfying to you personally than doing a dozen things that you really don't care that much about. You know, when I look back on my, on my, on my college experiences, like did I have fun, you know, playing ultimate Frisbee? Yeah, I'm sure I did. You know, <laughs> did I enjoy building houses in Habitat for Humanity? Yeah, I'm sure I did. But those experiences, they didn't really stay with me. Like they didn't make me a different person today. It was just sort of one of those things you do in college and it kind of fades into the background. Whereas again, that time I spent in New Guinea was, I mean, that, I mean, that affects me every single day. And I think it definitely has, has affected the type of physician I am and sort of what I, how I interact with people and the, so I just, I don't know, like I said, I definitely agree that quality over quantity is where people should focus their attention. There was a, a quote that I heard recently somewhere. I don't know where to attribute it to, but I'll steal it for here. The quote was, different is better than better. 
And I think for extracurriculars, for just your life in general, for your applications, different is definitely better than better. Yeah, no, I mean, for the purposes of, of again, an application, um, something that stands out is going to help you more than something that's just like everyone else, but a little bit better. So, you know, like everyone's got research experience pretty much applying to the top med schools. You know, just having your name on some research lab is not going to carry a lot of weight compared to something that's real unique and something that definitely stands out and makes you seem much more memorable than other candidates. Yeah. I had a trip to Kenya in my application. I, I remember talking about that during my interviews. So that's only a couple of the points in your video. And I'll put a link to the video in the show notes so everybody can go watch it. But there was one other thing I wanted to talk about, something that seems to be a huge thorn in the side for pre-meds, and that's shadowing. Mm-hmm. I'm assuming somebody like yourself who's at Stanford, you or your program get a lot of requests for pre-meds to shadow. Mm-hmm. Do you have any tips for pre-meds when they're out searching for physicians and trying to find these these physicians to shadow? Yeah, a couple tips. I think the first, don't be surprised if, if physicians that you email or um, call up, just, you know, they, they everyone wants to help. Everyone wants, no one you, that you ask for to shadow, no one's ever going to be like, oh, I don't think students should be shadowing me. Like no one's ever going to have like this negative opinion about your requests, but there's gonna be a lot of people that are just not able to accommodate them. And so just to be prepared for the fact that a lot of people are going to have to turn you down for one reason or another, either due to lack of time or in my, my own case, um, I get a lot of requests to shadow from students from abroad, particularly for some reason, a lot of students in India actually email me and say, hey, I'm, I want to spend the summer in the States and we're working this lab. I'd love to shadow you. And unfortunately, I work at the VA, but because I work at a VA, uh, <laughs> unfortunately, I can't accommodate those students. The VA has very strict kind of policies about non-citizens kind of without, you know, actual clinical appointment, being able to kind of walk around and see uh, patients with you. Like the, the VA just doesn't allow, essentially allow international students to shadow. And so there's going to be reasons that physicians you email won't be able to help you. Another thing to, to definitely consider is don't just email like 50 people randomly. I know that it seems like, you know, if the response rate is going to be on the lower side, that it might be tempting to just send out like this form email to every single person that you can find an email address for. I think your, your chances of getting a, a, res, a positive response is going to be much, much better if you actually research the person you're emailing and actually know something about them. And that way, you don't just say like, hey, Dr. So-and-so, I would love to shout at you because I want to become a physician and blah, blah, blah. Like if you can discuss what specifically that physician does that you're most interested in. Like, for example, hey, I saw that you, uh, Dr. So-and-so, are working as a hematologist at Stanford, and hematology is something that is really important to me because of this reason. It's something I think is really interesting and passionate about. And I saw that you have this paper that you published a couple of years ago on the use of this one chemotherapy agent in leukemia, and I just happened to have studied acute leukemia in this research lab I worked in, or so you know, so tie some way your personal interest into what that physician specifically does. I think the physician's going to be way more likely to take on a shadowing student than if it seems like it's a form email. You know, like I said, I, I get a lot of requests for shadowing, and you know, my the ones that seem like they're form emails, I don't read them just because I just I don't have time. And so if, if you Someone sends me a form email saying, hey, I want to shout at you. They get a formed response back saying, no, I'm sorry, I can't accommodate you. 
if students send me a, like a, something that's more personal, something that shows that they actually like know, you know, what I do, like if just acknowledging that I'm a, a hospitalist, for example, then even if I can't accommodate them, I will try to direct them towards people that I think are going to be a more appropriate fit for one reason or another. Yeah, so I, I think that's probably that my I think sort of along the same lines with trying to demonstrate that you that you know who this position is and you, you know, there's a specific reason that you're seeking that position out. Probably the best thing to do when finding shadowing is to shadow someone that you know or have some type of connection to. So not saying shadow your own physician, that would probably not be a good idea. But if, you know, for example, if, if one of your parents or one of your siblings or an aunt and uncle, if they know a doctor or if there's a friend of yours whose parents a doctor, again, shadowing someone that you have some type of connection to by two or three degrees of separation, that's going to be much more likely to pan out also. Because, you know, whenever an attending physician, whenever a physician takes on a shadowing student, as passionate as that doctor may be about sharing their, their expertise and sharing their knowledge with the student, it's always going to be more work onto the physician. It's always going to be work that's not compensated. And so the physician's going to be more likely to take on additional work if they feel some type of connection with you, rather than if you're just some anonymous stranger that found their name on, on a Google search. I like it. So Eric, as we wrap up, you had mentioned earlier that you have friends and, and you know colleagues that are kind of disenchanted with medicine. Medscape surveys show that physicians are disenchanted with surveys, yet I have thousands of pre-med students that are listening to this podcast right now who are dying to get into medical school. What do you say to them as a practicing physician? You have a wife who's a physician. What do you say to them to keep them motivated on their journey? Yeah, well, I mean, I love being a physician. I love what I do. If I didn't love it, I would find a way. As I, I, you know, although I did say it's a little bit difficult to getting out. If I didn't love it, I, I would definitely find a way to get out. And I, I'm still doing it. And my wife loves doing what she does. And although, you know, both of us can name a small handful of people that are disenchanted, there are definitely lots of people that feel very passionate about being physicians. And I, I think it's really just about making sure that you are going into medicine because it's truly what you're passionate about rather than being a default pathway that you never reconsidered once you got on. And as long as you sort of know what to expect at the end of the road, you know, I think some of the things that can lead to disenchantment is not realizing that, hey, being a doctor is really hard. <laughs> you know, sometimes people, I think, have this impression that the hardest part about becoming a doctor is the MCAT, or the hardest part about being a doctor is getting into medical school. And the answer is, is the actual truth is that the hardest part about being a doctor is being a doctor right? Like being a doctor is more challenging than getting into medical school was in some aspects, but it's also way more rewarding. And so I think, again, if you, as long as you, you know, go into the field of medicine, as long as you, you know, go down that pre-med path, knowing that, that this is, you know, this is going to be hard. It's going to be a lot of hard work, not just at the very up, up front at the beginning with getting into school, but the whole pathway, you know, all the way through your career, it's going to be hard, but knowing also that it's going to be very, very rewarding and very satisfying, you're going to be able to help a lot of people. I think as long as you go into the, into the pre-med track with your eyes wide open and know exactly what to expect, then you're going to have no problems and you're, you're going to be very satisfied at the end. Again, that was Dr. Eric Strong. His YouTube channel, Eric's Medical Lectures, can be found at youtube.com slash Dr. Eric Strong. That's Dr. D-R, Eric Strong. Again, we'll have links to all that. If you're driving, don't write down anything. Keep your phones out of your, your hands. We'll have a link to that in the show notes at 151 medicalschoolhq.net slash 151.
5-1. We have several more reviews that came in, and I, I want to thank these four people for taking the time to do so. Uh, Nelso HJ said, wish I had found this sooner. You know, I often hear that. You hear in a lot of these reviews, wish I had found this sooner, wish I had found this sooner. You know what you can do to help people find this sooner? Go tell them about it. That's how you help somebody find it sooner. So Nelso HJ said, this podcast gave me hope again. I'm two years out from a BS in biology. And after listening to almost all of the podcasts, I have a solid plan to get into medical school. Thank you for that rating interview. And I hope you get in and then you can come on the podcast and be a guest. A Cohen 74 says, love it. Sweet podcast, guys. I listen to the podcast every day right before my study sessions. Puts me in the mood to study hard and smart. I think it would put me to sleep, but that's just me. (laughs) Thank you for that rating interview. Right into Danger Zone says, simply the greatest podcast ever. Uh, Thank you for that. uh, Simply the podcast, greatest podcast ever. That's awesome. Thank you for that. Says, I just found this podcast. And listening to some of the stories restored hope to keep going. I learned so much from listening to a couple episodes than I ever did talking to my advisors. Well, again, go let your advisors know about this podcast and maybe we'll have a little bit something more to help you with. And one more from Great Verse Commentary says they're an old pre-med. This is an extremely helpful tool for non-traditional students. Listen in the car on the way to work and get ahead on your planning. Thank you for that rating interview. If you haven't left a rating interview yet and you would like to, go to medicalschoolhq.net slash iTunes. And don't forget to check out our partner magazine, Pre-Med Life Magazine at premedlife.com. They're a bi-monthly magazine publishing issues bi-monthly. They have tons of great posts, tons of great stories. Again, premedlife.com. I hope you got a ton of great information out of the podcast today. And as always, I hope you join us next week here at the Medical School Headquarters. (laughs) 